The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Bo's done an awful lot of good in the world. We trust there's more to be done. Bo, Bo Marinov, once again, ladies and gentlemen, come join us again, Bo. get started I want to ask you all something if you haven't visited the AHA table do it after this lecture because this conference turns out to be one of the first conferences where these men and women of God are not treated like trash Amen Amen So what we uh, what we talked yesterday is that the church needs a um, total reassessment of what we've done so far. We live in a radical time and places radical demands on us. And I was asked today we were talking about a different issue, and I was asked today the question: Are you willing then to reassess this issue or that issue or that issue? It was on a completely different topic. It was on the topic of American slavery and race relations, and <clears throat> in a in a restitution uh, related to it. So the question was: Are you willing to reassess also some other? ethical judicial issues related to it and my answer is my answer was yes I'm willing to reassess absolutely everything that we have hold dear and I'm willing to slaughter every sacred cow that you find in my fold and we all need to be like this because in the radical times like ours we need that and again we live in a radical time very different from any other time in history because we have been very unfaithful. We have inherited a Christian culture from our forebears, forebears in the faith. And, uh, and look at what's happening in the world around us today, specifically America. And in fact, if you go outside America, the 
kingdom of God is expanding outside America and we're losing it here when we used to be the main exporter of the kingdom of God in the world. And this is a very radical situation. If we don't understand it, we'll continue losing and we'll lose more than, than, than what we think we can lose. <clears throat> so yesterday we started with the fact that the church needs to become a teacher. A teacher, but not a teacher that is only teaching kindergarten pupils with uh, just milk and sometimes not even milk, but like uh, powder milk, you know, and really rarefied. But the church needs to pull everybody up, including its smartest and wisest members, so that, uh, and the teaching from the pulpit needs to be above the heads of everybody. And if we're talking about the simpler teaching, everybody else needs to do that teaching. Teaching needs to be so decentralized <clears throat> because, excuse me, in a culture, teaching is decentralized. If we want to become a culture. Now we'll continue with the rest of it. What, what we need to do uh, with the rest of it so that we can turn the church into a culture. Now, this second point will kind of startle some of y'all, and that's okay. It startled me when I started thinking about it. And this is individual maturity and purpose trumps institutional cohesion. If you want me to repeat it, I'll say it again. Individual maturity and purpose trumps, trump institutional cohesion. In the context of some recent controversies over ecclesiology, the abolitionist movement, the question of hierarchy has, has again been raised among, uh, in, in, in the reformed churches. Oh, we, we reform love talking, you know, about hierarchy. We just love talking about it. Hierarchy is everything to us. Most of us, Presbyterian, Baptist, Dutch Reformed Congregational, we don't have bishops anymore, right? Well, our Reformed Episcopal brothers still do because our ancestors fought for the right not to have their consciences subjected to the rule of prelates and prelatical hierarchy. They fought for it. They fought wars for it. <clears throat> they have done some quite uh, radical things against that prelatical hierarchy. For example, as some of us know, the Second Reformation in Scotland, which established Presbyterianism as we know it today, started with a woman named Jenny Geddes. Who, hearing a prelate trying to introduce the English Book of Common Prayer, the liturgy, in her church, threw her stool at his head. <laughs> with the words they'll give you colic the way Maria false thief don't you say mass in my lug I'm sorry I'm, my, my Scottish probably is not so good but <laughs> devil calls you colic in your stomach false thief dare you say the mass in my ear and she threw her stool at, at, at his head. Scottish Presbyterians 
and their Reformed English brethren, Puritan, Presbyterian, Baptist, then fought several wars, most of which were against royal and church power, defending their Christian liberty, a concept that our pastors today have forgotten so thoroughly they don't even preach on it anymore. Amen. It's ironic that today we, the heirs of such a glorious heritage of righteous pulling the trigger against hierarchy that has proven fruitless and even evil, are the first to insist that we should submit to any power that has some claim to authority. And not even consider Christians those who simply follow in the footsteps of the early reformed who would rather defy all power than allow any powerful man exercise false authority over them. Biblical hierarchy is important, no, no doubt, because there is such a thing as godly authority. There is no doubt about it. What we have been missing, however, as Reformed Christians, is that godly authority is related to godly government. And in the biblical view of society of church, the main and most fundamental of sphere of government is self-government. We as Christian Reconstructionists are even more guilty about it because our own theonomic view has always emphasized that the main and most fundamental form of government is self-government. This concept comes directly from the law of God, which is almost entirely written in second person singular. We don't, we don't notice that in English because we have you, but those of us that speak other languages notice it. It's entirely written in singular. <clears throat> As if God was speaking to every individual Hebrew. I am the Lord, your God, singular, your. Who brought you out of Egypt, singular. All the you and yours are in singular. The law was given first and foremost to the individual person. Not to his rulers to impose it on him, but to the individual person to obey. Before the rulers were addressed at all. It was first and foremost an instruction in self-government. Family and church and civil government were to get involved only in the cases where there was a severe failure of self-government, that is, where there was sin or injustice in an unrepentant way. Even in those cases where there was sin and injustice, Jesus still advised to give another try to self-government instead of going to litigation and institutional solution. Make peace with your adversary before you go to the judge. And Paul advises to rather suffer to be wrong than take fellow believers before unbelieving judges. In 1 Corinthians 6, 7, the individual and his self-government were at the center of that law. In a biblical society, mature men were expected to act alone under God, not under babysitting or compulsion or fear or reprisals or care by elders whether church bureaucrats or 
uh, or government bureaucrats. Even children were expected to be weaned off, weaned off their dependence on their parents as early as possible, as Genesis 2.24 clearly says. A man shall be, shall be taken care by his father and mother until he dies, right? Until they die. No. Shall leave his father and mother. The head of every man is his pastor, Paul says. Christ. <clears throat> not his pastor, not his governor, not even his earthly father, but Christ. That is why Christian Reconstruction has naturally been not only an ally of libertarianism, oh, what a horror, right? <laughs> but has also been the only source of true, consistent, logical libertarianism. As Rush Dooney pointed out many times, it was the Bible that gave the rise to the modern views of individualism, because only biblical individualism is true individualism. Contrary to some modern misguided commentators who imagine that individualism has pagan origins. It doesn't. There's no pagan ideology that can even produce any philosophical root for true individualism. That's why modern libertarianism, even when claiming to be secular, can only emerge and exist in the context of a Christian, biblical worldview. And that's why Rush Dooney said, that theocracy is misunderstood. It is the closest thing to radical libertarianism that can be had. But stop here and consider this logically. If hierarchy is related to authority and government, and if self-government is the main and fundamental government of all, then when we want to establish a godly hierarchy, What is the first thing we need to establish as authority? You want me to, to repeat the question? If self-government is the main and fundamental government at all, of all, and if hierarchy is related to government, what is the first thing we need to establish as authority? Well, on, on the earth. Self-government. The authority of the individual. I'm just being logical here. Go ahead and tell me I'm not right. Talking about hierarchy while ignoring the most fundamental government is to entirely miss the point of authority in government. We talked uh, a, a little bit earlier today with a few young men out there about a, uh, an, uh, one of my elders, a guy who I consi still consider my elder even though we're not in the uh, same geographical place uh, again, Joseph Foreman, a good friend of mine, a hero of the times of Operation Rescue, spent time in, in, time in prison for his stand for the unborn. So he told me a story about a meeting of reform elders gathered to start a new church. He was present at that meeting and when they got to the church position on governments, they started discussing at length all the prerogatives and rights and responsibilities of all three institutional governments because they wanted to include it in that constitution. You know, you know, what's their view of governments? Family, church, civil. At one point, Joseph 
and he can do that because he's rather a maverick, intervened and asked, excuse me, aren't we missing one government? Like cell government? And they all, yeah, there was first silence, kind of awkward silence, and they all agreed. And the next minute forgot about it, ignored it, and continued as, as if he hadn't said anything. <laughs> no matter what denomination you go to, open their books and read and tell me if there is anything even close to acknowledging the prerogatives and responsibilities and rights of self-government, let alone its rights against the other governments. And I tell you, because of several articles that I wrote, I had to read them all. The PCA, OPC, PC, uh, CREC, you know, and all the other, nothing whatsoever, zero about self-government, zero about the rights and responsibilities of the individual vis-a-vis -vis church government or civil government, nothing. There's nothing, and yes, I have read them. Does anyone today actually believe there is such a thing as self-government? None of your elders do. If they did, they would have done something about your church constitutions. Do we as Protestants actually believe in that first and most important Protestant doctrine of the right and duty of the individual to obey his own conscience? And then I still hear complaints from a number of church ministers that, oh, you know, individualism is so dominant in our churches. Are you kidding me? Your church documents have not a single word to protect the individual from the collective. Not a single word. Your sermons never mention the individual maturity and purpose of man, and you think individualism is rampant? Looks to me that the evidence points to the obvious, to the contrary. We have too much collectivism in our churches today. But it's even worse than that. Because we have ignored the rights and responsibilities of self-government, we have also ignored the necessity for building individual maturity and purpose in our people. Our churches today have invited individuals to join only to lose their individuality and to become part of the crowd, a faceless part of the crowd, if possible, thank you. We have church programs, we have statistics to report, we have pews to fill. Any members of our churches are only advised as to what they can do to contribute to the church, preferably in money, but work and effort is okay too. Yeah, I know, pastors would sit down in counseling with individual people, but this is only as far as there is a problem to be solved, like between spouses, some psychological or moral problem, but that's, but that's only aimed at making the church more comfortable for everybody else. After all, no elder wants his church to be known as a place of trouble, right? So you want to counsel people so that it's not a place of trouble. I have never met pastors who would actually sit down with members to discover and discuss their positive individual purpose in life or their positive individual maturity. 
I once uh, was present at the church where after service a childless couple approached the elders to pray for them to have children. For the nth time. I was also invited to pray with them and I listened to the elders carefully examining the couple if they had any sins in their lives and pray and I listened to the elders carefully examining the couple, I'm sorry, and uh, uh, if they had any sins in their lives that may be holding the the promise of God, uh, holding by the promise of God, etc., etc. And after the prayer I sat with the couple and started asking them questions of a different sort. Their occupations, their vision, their expectations of the future, their purpose for their own lives, their commitment to causes greater than themselves and their family and and, and their desire to have kids. And I discovered that that, that they had had only minimal expectations for the future. They had actually made the self-conscious decision to be as unproductive as possible in their life. I'm not kidding you. That's what they told me. We don't want to have any, any kind of well-paid job. We just do at a very low level, uh, like uh, construction work, and stuff like that. And never even applied their real gifts in practice. They were intelligent people. They knew their real gifts. They knew they could be more productive in other places, and yet they had made the self-conscious decision not to be productive. They had absolutely no idea about the future. They had absolutely, and and they were in their like late 30s. In their mentality, they were no different than, than hippies. And listen to this, it's even worse. It gets even worse. Their elders never really talked to them about it. This was the first time they were having any conversation about purpose, future, maturity, productivity. It was the first time in their life. Never really bothered to discover if that couple had any positive vision or purpose for the future. Yeah, they didn't have any positive sin in their lives, but neither did they have any purpose. So the elders were looking in the wrong direction. And it was a good serious Reconstructionist church. And the elders are my friends. With elders, outstanding men of God, really committed to the task of Christian reconstruction, all of them, much better men than, than I am. A culture is not created by collectives. A culture is created by the individual involvement of individual men. That means by their individual ambitions, hopes, desires, things that make each one of them find his own place in the society and have a sense of proprietorship in that society. Look at Israel. When they moved to the land, there was specific separation of the land for each specific family and that land was supposed to stay separated until the end of Israel as a nation. That means everybody had to have his piece of land. Well, if they grew up, that means that, you know, and the sons inherited, that means that 20 generations down the road, every son would have enough, enough land to put a handkerchief on it. But it didn't matter. It was still their land. And I'm not saying we need to recreate that 
agricultural model, but I'm, uh, what I want to point to you is that the individual had his own participation with his own land. When men interact as individuals, work as individuals, trade as individuals, plan into the future as individuals, and are morally responsible as individuals, only then a culture is formed and developed. Then each individual has his own purpose, and his actions are driven by his own purpose. A culture is not formed by melting individuals into a big collectivist pot. Collectivism leads to the creation of concentration camps. And concentration camps are not culture, and neither can they influence or dominate the culture. Collectivism is always inferior to individualism as a culture builder. We see this in the formation of Christendom in the early centuries of the church. No matter what we imagine today in the final account, being a Christian in a pagan society, especially in a pagan society that persecutes Christians, had to involve a great dose of individualism for each one of these people. While the church is at peace, all is well, it's easy to be both a collectivist and a Christian. After all, being with a collective can get you a lot of advantages, right? When everything is okay. Especially when there's prosperity, you know, and you can have business contacts, uh, you, ha you can have distribution of welfare, etc., etc. But when the time comes to face the wild beasts in the arena, you better not be a collectivist. The cross, the tools of the torturers, and the possibility that all your Christian friends may apostatize and abandon the faith and leave you alone against your persecutors, the pain and the fear and the hopelessness and the death are deeply personal and individual. And only those with a strong spirit and faith in their own individual destiny under God and salvation in Christ will stand the test. And it was this individual culture that defeated the collectivist mobs of Rome. No pagan has ever adopted contra mundum against the world as their motto. Only Christians adopted it. And those who adopted it defeated the world. Thus, to expect to defeat the prevalent culture today through converting church members into little collectivists is very stupid. But that's what we've been doing for a hundred years. The people who join your church should not be expected to adjust their lives to serve your church as the highest expression of their faith. Yes, I'm serious about it. To the contrary, your institutional church must adjust itself to discover or help them discover their individual purpose and mission and work towards achieving their individual maturity and send them out. Amen. The body is not built up unless the individuals are equipped and they're not equipped to work on someone else's farm.
Every individual man has his own individual 160 acres in the kingdom. Americans know what I'm referring to. Which he has to discover and till, that means enculturate, in order for your church to be built into a culture. Focusing on your institution wants to do the job. But what about the ministers? The ministers need to step back, let the people strive towards their own goals and objectives in the Lord, and only intervene when they're asked for advice or when they, there is sin, sin to, or injustice to deal with. The old Reformed practice was that believers are supposed to go out of the church and conquer the world. The work of the elders was to teach and judge cases. Teaching injustice and no executive interference with individual purpose and personal liberty is the formula for successful eldership. And when your people sometimes complain that they're tired of taking care of themselves and want a ruler like the other religions, reply to them with the words from Hebrew. By now, you should have all become teachers. Leave back all elementary teachings and press on to maturity, your own personal maturity. <clears throat> I need to admit the other three points I have not developed too well yet. But I'm going to lay the foundation for thinking in the future. The mature man is a judging man. That's point three. A mature man is a judging man. Oh yeah, you heard that one, haven't you? Can't judge. You shouldn't judge. Don't judge or else you'll be judged. Great! I want to be judged. We all need to be judged. We all should want to be judged. So what does maturity mean? Fair enough, we have to teach our people to become mature. But what is, what is it to become mature? Is it to have all knowledge? Theological knowledge? Knowledge about art, symbolism, rituals? Knowledge about Greek and Hebrew? How to discover the hidden meaning of certain verses in the Bible? Some secret knowledge about God's sovereign will? Maybe being able to make money, let's go more practical, or lead and control and manipulate people to do what we want them to do. How does, how does the Bible define maturity? The New Testament gives us the answer. There's only one answer in the New Testament. Hebrews 5.14 A solid foot is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to judge good and evil. Now, what I'm going to say here is not new for some of you who have listened to my podcast on covenant thinking over a year ago in the first episode of Acts to the Root. So bear with me now. For the others, this may be a new thing. Okay? But that's okay. So both groups, bear with me. Okay? Don't, don't get too bored. One, the first group, the second group, don't, don't get too scandalized. Okay? The foundations of God's throne are righteousness and justice. That much is known. Psalm 80, 89, 14. Many other verses. But also God's throne 
is established among his people, Ezekiel 43.7. Put those two together. God's throne is among us, and his foundations, its foundations are righteousness and justice. So we know when it's, this throne is established among us, when righteousness and justice reign among us. This is where I take the phrase I use so often, and people ask me about it, ethical, judicial. People ask me, where'd you get that phrase from? Well, right from here. Ethical, righteousness, and judicial, justice. These are not two different moral standards. These are, this is the same standard applied to two different objects. It's about how we treat God, righteousness, and it's about how, treat, how we treat our neighbor, justice. You know, the two great commandments, what are they? Love God and love your neighbor. And you have the Ten Commandments, which the first five is love God, and he has the fifth is love God. And the other five are love your neighbor. So there's righteousness and there's justice. Righteousness is love God, simple. Love God and justice, love your neighbor. Not only we, but our institutions also. How does your family treat God and man? How does your church treat God and man? How does your civil government treat God and man? At every level, it's about the standards of treatment of God and man. This means that the central question of the Bible is the question of good versus evil. Not of beauty versus ugliness. I've, I mean, I prefer the world to be only beautiful, but it, it's not. Not of rational versus irrational. Not even of productive or economic versus non-productive or wasteful. Not of intellectual versus stupid. Don't get me wrong, all these issues are important. They have their own ethical judicial aspects to them. But they all have their importance or non-importance only in the context of God's standards for good and evil. This is the main issue of the Bible. From end to end, it is good versus evil. This is, this is the front line there. This is the line from beginning to end. You got, you got good on one side, evil on the other side. Nothing else matters. No other line matters in the Bible. But they, <laughs> the productivity of your local baker, product, let's take productivity. Is productivity good or is it bad? Well, you would say it is good, but the productivity of your local bakery is good, but the productivity of a gas chamber in Auschwitz is not good, right? It's bad. Okay? What about the beauty? The beauty of a righteous woman is good, but what about the beauty of a prostitute? Right? It's evil. <clears throat> the only thing that never changes is God's ethical standards. When God created the world, his first reaction to it was giving an ethical assessment according to an ethical standard. He looked at the world and he said, oh, it's rational. Oh, it's beautiful. No, it's good. When God will judge us all in the final day, it will be for our works, good or evil. <laughs> well, of course, he's not going to judge us for our evil work because we're in trouble. Jesus took care of those, but still they matter. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. Not for our ugly creations, but for our evil works. Thus, judgment between good and evil is the ultimate test for a mature man, a man who has wisdom and imitates God. In fact, this is the only definition of a spiritual man given in the Bible. 
in 1 Corinthians 2.15. <laughs> Every time I hear people, oh, he's not spiritual, or this guy's spiritual, and so on, and I think, he has no idea what the Bible says about a spiritual man. There's only one definition in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2.15, the spiritual man judges all things. You see a man who doesn't judge based on the standard of good and evil, he is not spiritual. He is fleshly. And if something should be in the center of our teachings from the pulpit and out of the pulpit, it is to teach our people in the churches and to train them thoroughly every day, every week, to judge all things. A culture is only defined by its ethical and judicial codes. We look today at the remains of the cultures of old. We marvel at statues and monuments and inscriptions and art and ruins of old cities. And because of this, we all we see remain uh, that we all see remaining. We think that at the heart of a culture are its artistic expressions or its architectural monuments or, or, or whatever else, or its. Uh, uh, um, irrigation systems or anything else. But this is wrong. At the center of a culture are its views of good and evil and of their practical applications to everyday life. Christians and non-Christians, no matter what the circumstances, always approach every subject with judgment. This is good and this is evil. You know, even the atheists, they tell you, oh, there's no absolute standard of, of good and evil. And next thing they do, but Christianity is evil. Right? Thank you, you just proved it's right. Christianity is right. And it is this judgment that defines a culture. When a group doesn't exercise such judgment, it is not a culture. If your church is not constantly involved in the process of judging all things based on the law of God on a biblical standard, it is not a culture. It may be a mystery cult, it may be in the name of Jesus, it may be a sect, but it is not a culture and it is not a church by default. About 10 years ago, we were members of a small Baptist church, and I, I had the privilege to, to talk to the pastor once we were traveling, not very long distance. But we had a conversation about, and he was not, he was just a Reformed Baptist, nothing more. Sorry, that was supposed to be a joke, but Joel, Joel Sane didn't hear me. <laughs> And he was, he was a good man. I mean, he's been a missionary to Africa for, for many years, for 14 years. His family lived there, very self-sacrificial man. We started talking about the application of the gospel to, to money and to, to the stock exchange and to, to the, the whole issue of financial, uh, uh, financial business and so on, investments. And at some point he just said, you know, I stay away from that subject because I know nothing about money and I don't even think the gospel is applied to the, can be applied to that subject. So I said, but there's issues of good and evil there, aren't there? I don't even know about that. But this 
is the way many pastors in this country think. In fact, this is the way most pastors in this country think. What they do is they look at everything around the world, everything around them in the world, and the first and, and one thing they refuse to apply to it, what Rush Tooney calls studied irrelevance, is do not apply a standard of good and evil to the real world around you. And what comes out of those churches is anything but spiritual man. So what does that mean for us if we want to turn our church into a culture? Simple. We just start teaching our people to become judges. And the, and the, the standards of good and evil must become the center of our teaching. Actually, it's more than that. Our churches need to start getting involved in issues of righteousness and justice. In the Roman Empire, churches were involved in saving babies from the heaps they were thrown on. That was obviously an injustice at the same level as modern abortion. The churches then organized their people to go and save those children from the heaps. The churches were so successful in saving those babies from, from exposure and raising them up that at some point the pagan governments and some cities banned Christians from even approaching those garbage heaps because they figured out that this was the way the church grew. That was not something that individual people did. That was an effort of the church as an institution. If the, Rome, if the church in the Roman Empire could do that, in our day our own churches need to start getting involved as churches to fight for justice in the land. The Church Repent Project is only the beginning of it. It will be a great dividing line in our, in our land between churches that are actually churches and churches that are not. Because what the Church Repent Project is doing is telling the churches, you have to get involved and judge with us. For our churches to become cultures, we need to incorporate within the church every single activity that we expect of the broader culture. If we want to be an alternative culture, we got to act like it. Now many pastors would say that the church can't get involved in worldly activism, but individuals can, if they feel led. And of course, nobody in their churches feels led. <laughs> you know, but that's okay. But the church shouldn't get involved. What they're saying is that individual Christians should get involved in activism only on the terms and in the context of the worldly culture, not, in the, not on the terms and in the context of the church as a culture. Guess what the result of this will be and has been? The church will only be isolated as a marginal sect outside the culture, while the dominant culture will be the one who will control the context in which the activists work. That's how we got to this point today, and we need to change that. Point four, and here we're, here's where... I still don't have much to say because I need to develop it. Historical predictability. How we treat the poorest and the most productive among us. 
I have made a connection here that doesn't seem obvious to <clears throat> most of us. Now this one should be a no-brainer, and yet so few churches actually understand it and do it. In fact, this one has been missing from the church for, lo for a long time, and I have seen it only recently applied in some churches, not in America, by the way, but on the mission field. For example, back in Bulgaria, we have some missions uh, among the, the gypsies, uh, a very despised minority, and he, I would say <laughs> rightfully despised <laughs> for, for many reasons, and, and they would tell you the same thing themselves, because they know very well you know, where they stand on many issues, but in, in some of the churches, they are actually very involved in teaching their people productivity instead of just delivering to them uh, a, a religious experience on Sunday morning. I have met a pastor whose main job during the week is trying to find ways to teach his young people how to become entrepreneurs or get some education in a community where most men until recently were illiterate. In that same church he's trying to do everything to make sure that the poorest members of the church are fed, if nothing else, at least. We have been to, to their school. They have their own school. We're talking about a community where everybody lives, every family lives on less than $100 a month. And that is in a city where the government has put all the gypsies in a ghetto and has surrounded the ghetto with a four meters high concrete wall with a police booth at the front. <laughs> but they're not complaining, by the way, <laughs> of that. It's just the way things are. And they have a school in their church where they take close to 100 children just from the street because their parents are either drug addicts or, uh, or you know, just don't care about them, and they teach them every week. And you go there and, and you would not stop crying just to see those kids. Many of them just don't have shoes. And they just found some clothes there on the garbage heap and, and just put them on. And they teach them. They feed them and they teach them. And so on. This is, this is what they do. And we're not talking about a pastor who is just a social justice warrior. We're talking about a pastor who at the same time is building a library for his young people in the church. And guess whose books are in this library first? The books that Bulgarian Reformation Ministries translates for Bulgaria. And he, he has these, his young people reading those books. My first visit to their place is like a guy was going, like a gypsy guy. I mean, that, that he, he learned to read when he was 17. He was 23 when, when I was there a couple of years ago. And guess what book he was carrying around? Gary North's Unconditional Surrender. <laughs> He just learned to read six years ago. <laughs> Why is this important? Why is this important that the churches start acting as economic entities which both encourage productivity and work to encourage productivity and at the same time want to act as safety net for the poorest members of their community? We talked earlier the, about the importance, uh, yesterday actually, of historical trends for assessing our progress and our faithfulness. Now let's connect this to the individual purpose of all these people and the, the significance of the individual in, in, in that big picture. 
for anyone out there who approaches the church and never knows what's in the church, his biggest question will be, how will I be able to grow in this environment? And maybe his first question sometimes, if he is really hungry, his first growth is, how can I get food every day? And maybe we can call this a rice bowl Christianity, but it's not always a rice bowl Christianity, if you do it right. It's a Christianity that actually starts creating positive results for these people, for the lowest of the society, for the lowest of the community. Now when you go to the Old, to the Old Testament, we see that the tithe in the Old Testament was used for the poorest people in the society and unlike modern Americans also who believe that it's going to be just for our people, also for the stranger. Did you all notice that? The question then, when we look at this stranger coming to Israel, he's going to a city, he comes from another city, he comes from a pagan city, from a pagan nation, where he doesn't have anything like that, where he doesn't have any protection against anything, no legal protection, no economic sustenance, no economic help. He's the poorest guy, he's, he's a stranger, and going to another nation means also he doesn't have any rights in that nation, because in, 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 in the ancient world, going to a different nation meant that you lose all your rights. I've talked about it on my series on immigration, but what's important here is he goes to Israel and the first thing he sees is the local people telling him we have such an abundance that we can feed even you, the stranger. And what he sees is a historical trend for assessing progress. He looks at Israel and his first thought will be, this is, the this is a nation that has progress. They must be doing something right. I want to join them. The productivity of the community will become visible to all when we start feeding people as cast a net as wide as possible to feed as many people as possible. It doesn't mean that we can solve all the problems in the whole world, but once we start casting that net, which doesn't have to be spending a whole lot of money on it, we will be able to cover at least those in the nearest community. And then we will create a culture that is alternative to what we have around us. Let me ask you this, why is the first thing that the government does try to establish a system of welfare. Because establishing a system of welfare is establishing a new culture. Under communism, churches were banned from giving out welfare. Reason? because they didn't want to create an alternative culture. They didn't want to allow any alternative culture to be created. When we do that, we're creating an alternative culture to the government. Rashtuni himself said that we can't ask for removal of taxes or lowering taxes until we start 
addressing the same needs which today are addressed by those taxes. We as a church which wants to be transformed into a culture. And then, in order to do that, we need to, do, we need to go to the other end of the spectrum and talk to the most productive people in our churches. So far, we have looked at businessmen and people of, pow people of economic power and people of high productivity only as cows to milk for the purposes of the session for the purposes of the church. We have programs in the church, they need money, we go to the uh, richest person and we say, and, and what was that? We don't want, we don't want to keep the don donors happy, right? Okay, as long as we keep the donors happy, you know, they're in the church, we'll, is, we'll manipulate them a little bit, get their money, keep them happy, and so on, we continue. In order to build a culture, we need to create a climate in which productivity becomes not just something that we milk for the, for the elders or for the church, but productivity becomes an example to follow, a role model, and an imperative for everyone in the church. We need to strive for higher productivity and use those people who have higher productivity to be examples for our people. I haven't developed this one, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. And I'll just move to point five. Sorry about this. And, uh, and this is point five. We need to be open to the future, not stuck in the past. Now, I used to think about this only in terms of the individual. And I've talked about it in terms of the individual or more like the broader community. And I used to talk about it, and if you look at my lectures back in the past, I used to talk about that focus on the future, that optimism about the future. You know, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.21 where Paul says, all belongs to you. And then he says, the world, and Paul, Paul is the world, and then he says, the present, the future, all belongs to you as Christians, and he missed one thing. He missed the past. Why did he miss the past? Because in Philippians 3, he says, I do what with the past? Forget about the past and press forward. So the Bible is a book that focuses on the future and advises Christians to not look back in the past. I've never applied this to a church, though, to an institutional church until recently. And when I started applying it to an institutional church, I found it in the world around us. Our churches today are hopelessly stuck in the past and are never prepared for the future. One of the reasons why we're so powerless today is because two generations ago the churches could not predict what was what is gonna what we have today by the way the unbelievers did predict it and they were ready for it the main expression of that being stuck in the past is that obsession with being strict subscriptionist to confessions of the past several years ago I delivered a lecture Titled, History is Nothing More Than the Perfection of the Creeds Over Time. And this was at this conference here. It was uh, how many years ago? Five years ago. 
six or seven years ago. One lecture was Filioque, uh, uh, why the West is West and the rest is rest. And, uh, and then the other lecture was history is nothing more than development of the creeds over time. Now think about this. We like to rely on, the, on human creeds, but human creeds are only our knowledge about God's will and about the Word of God at a specific moment in history. In that lecture, I show that our faith grows in history, and if our faith grows, then our confessions must become better and better and must become perfected, and then history is entirely defined by our level of knowledge of the faith, our growth in the faith at that time in history. When we go back to the Reformation in the 16 and 15 and 1600s, we see that the churches at the time, the Protestant churches, were so focused on the future, they were not afraid to crank out confessions like every several years. And some of those confessions were even contradicting each other. I mean, most of y'all are probably Reformed Baptists here. Have you ever considered the difference between the first and the second Baptist confession in only 40 years? They're like opposite to each other on many points. Like the first several points are the same, and everything else is like the second confession completely annulled the first confession. Like the first confession said, you don't have to gather in churches. The second confession said, no, 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 you have to gather in churches. The first confession said, everybody can administer the sacraments. If he is a believer, the second confession said, no, 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 it's got to be only ordained ministers who can deliver the confession. Now, who is right? Now, the main thing here is these people were courageous to make all these experiments with their confessions and with their faith because they were not looking at the past. They were looking to the future and they were trying to find God's will for the future. And they were courageous to do all these things, even if they had to contradict each other, even in the course of several years. Now that thing continued into the 1800s and even the early 1900s. The early 1900s saw quite a few Presbyterian churches of all cranking out small local confessions. The church was entirely focused on the future and it was not stuck in the past with the so-called strip subscriptionism. What we have today is the closing of the reformed mind. The complete closing of the reformed mind. We have people who are strict subscriptionists to the Westminster Confession, and they don't don't want to move from there. That's the last time. Don't you know? The last time the Holy Spirit spoke was in 1647. Of course, we have our more progressive brethren, the Baptist brethren, who believe no, the Holy Spirit continued speaking until 1689. <laughs> And then we have some Presbyterian brethren for whom the Holy Spirit continued speaking until 1727. But that's it. That's about the last time he spoke at all. Without going into too much detail here, we need to stop this. We need to return to the same courageous spirit of looking to the future. Taking from the past only that which is proven good and trying to change the future and anticipate the future. I can't, can't say too much about it yet. I need to develop it, but maybe some other time. So thank you very much. And uh, let, me, let me just finish with this. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Let me just finish with this. Again, we need to start with the fact that our churches need to become 
a school for all. School that will teach a comprehensive worldview beyond any, anything that our members can imagine so that we can pull them up. The second thing we need to do is to emphasize individual maturity and purpose over institutional cohesion. Is it a bad thing if your local church disintegrates at some point? No, they always do, right? Can anybody vouch that his local church is not good, is going to exist a hundred years from now? No, you can't. But individual maturity and purpose must be the product of your church, even if your church doesn't survive. The third thing we need to do in order to build our churches into a culture is to teach our men to mature through judging based on a principle of on, on the God, God's principles of good and evil. The fourth point is historical predictability. To create a culture of where both a safety net is created and productivity is encouraged. A culture without safety net and productivity is not a culture. And then open our minds to the future and anticipate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.